Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay, the podcast where each episode we do a conversational deep dive analysis into a film. Today we are talking about The Banshees of Inishirin, written and directed by Martin McDonough, the 2022 film nominated for an Oscar, nine Oscars in fact, which is part of why we're talking about it, tis the season, etc. I'm joined by the Beyond the Screenplay team, Trisha Rand. Hello everyone. Brian Bittner. Hello, hello, like... And Alex Cayeros. Hi. Not bad. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Good work. Um, okay. So this film, written and directed by Martin McDonough, I have a relationship with this writer-director, which is that, you know, some things just like maybe aren't made for you and like that's okay. I feel like that's a little bit of like the relationship I've had with his films. And so I've watched... In Bruges, most of it didn't want to finish it, so I stopped. So I haven't seen all of In Bruges, so that's setting us up. Three billboards I did not care for personally. Good performances, lots of good things about it. Didn't really click for me. So I was apprehensive going into this, but very open. And it's like a mixed bag with this movie of things that I really liked and things that were sort of like, oh, I don't know, it was fine. I loved the performances. There were some really, really interesting characters that were extremely well performed. The simplicity of the story, like that it's just focused on this one relationship and that it's kind of a small plot, but an epic feel I was really into, which kind of ties into the, the tone, the sort of black comedy whatever this is like was really interesting and kind of a fun space to like exist in yeah so overall i had neutral expectations and enjoyed myself more than i thought i was going to and there were some things that still bumped for me but the more i've thought about it and like gone back over it in my brain the more i think i really enjoyed this movie and so that's kind of the mental journey that I'm going on. And so I'm curious to hear from you guys, your experience. You know, I went into this totally contextless, like I don't know any of the history or anything around any of it. I just am a person that watched a movie. And so that's what my, like, uh, where I'm going to be coming from at this. But Brian, I'm curious to hear from you. What, what do you think about this movie? Yeah. Uh, you know, talking about just like relationship with Martin McDonough in general, I love in Bruges. I, Walk, went over to a friend's house randomly and he was like, I just started watching this movie. And uh, and I sat down and we watched in Bruges and just had no idea what to expect. And, uh, and big fan of that movie since then. Yeah. I've sort of every McDonough movie I've been like, okay, like some stuff you are just nailing and like really beautiful, like direction and cinematography and performances, obviously. And then, but then I'm like, but I don't know if it's a hundred percent for me or I don't know if I a hundred percent took everything you wanted me to take away from it, away from it. And I feel like that's how I felt about this movie. I, I talked about it briefly as a, what am I watching a, a couple of weeks ago? Um, where I'm just like, again, beautiful cinematography, music by Carter Burwell, just like amazing performances. This movie feels like a, you know, a cross between McDonough and Yorgos Lanthimos and the Coen brothers. And there's like the movie itself is compelling. And then there's like themes that are, you know, make you think and make you want to come back to it. And like, that should be the perfect movie for me. And for some reason, there's something about it where I'm like, ah. um, so I like this movie a lot, but there's, there's some stuff that we can get into that I feel like is just keeping it from 
just completely hitting home for me. Interesting. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, yeah, we'll get into it. Trisha, what about you? I guess I kind of have similar feelings to you guys, whereas, you know, I really like this movie. Like, minute to minute watching it, I was really enthralled in the story. Um, and, of course, feeling nervous because <laughs> once I know it's escalating and it's going to get, we're going to lose some fingers and <laughs> it's going to be, I don't know, every review of it is like, a friendship ends with shocking consequences. And I was like, <laughs> oh, God, there's going to be shocking consequences. Um, so I was ready for that and and feeling nervous about all of that. And I think, you know, fully agree with all, everything that you guys are saying about it's really anchored by the performances and Martin McDonough is so good at writing interesting characters. Mm -hmm. He is a playwright. He writes meaty, fascinating characters for actors to play and like, say what you will about three billboards, you get some, you know, really interesting performances from these fascinating characters in that film. Same thing with in Bruges and I miss seven psychopaths, Sorry. Uh, I think a lot of people, <laughs> a lot of people, I think, didn't go see that one. But yeah, I think that that's what you get when you have a playwright who, who kind of sees uh, characters and scenes primarily, right? Like, uh, not that there isn't also story here, as you're pointing out. I think the story is also really interesting from like a an allegorical sort of folklorish point of view. Um but the one thing you really remember when you walk away from any of these films, uh, and especially this one, is the characters and the scenes themselves and the way that the scenes ebb and flow and escalate and weave into each other. And so I'm really impressed by it for that reason. I like seeing Martin McDonough return home. Uh, mm. He's written quite a few things set Actually in Actually go home adventures. for the first time, maybe? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, so I was reading that this is supposed to, this is kind of like uh, the third um, installment in a play trilogy that he was mm. working on. So like the other two are set, you know, in Ireland and like, I think in small towns in Ireland and they have very similar, like, you know, rhythms of names essentially. And they're about like this of this place, this of that place and this of this place. And this one was never made as a play. And then, you know, McDonough revisited it. So it's, like I said, it's nice to see McDonough returning to something that I'm going to assume he knows a lot more about than I do. <laughs> uh, the Irish Civil War and what it's like to live in rural Ireland. Um, and just like Irish identity. I think there's probably a lot that I'm missing here as an American viewer um, when it comes to Irish history and Irish identity. And so I think that probably you would interpret this film in a very different specific way um, if you had more experience in that culture. Um, but anyway, as it, as it stands, I do think there's a universal story here that's like really layered with really interesting themes um, that makes it accessible and makes it compelling uh, regardless uh, of the, I don't know, whether or not like it's going to be your favorite movie. And I'm not saying that it's mine, I, I do think that there's something here uh, that's um, very praiseworthy. So I'm excited to get into it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like you're saying, even if, you know, I, I'm sure there are lots of things that are completely lost on me as a viewer, but I, the richness of the story world is still there and you can feel it informing, again, those universal character like themes and takeaways, like you're saying, which mm -hmm. which is nice, which is I feel like what those things should be doing regardless. Yeah. Alex, what about you? Yeah, I have a similar relationship with Martin McDonough as you do, Michael, where, you know, billboards left me cold in a lot of ways. And there is kind of this bleakness at the heart of of his writing for me that uh, while really funny and you know, great characters and amazing dialogue at the end of it all, there's kind of just this okay uh feeling uh for me personally and i think in some ways it's it's a feeling that i like prefer in the theater like in in a play like going to see mm. a play version of this story would feel more satisfying strangely because in that theater space the idea of this like small almost allegorical four-person drama done this way feels like what I'm there for. And if I'm left in this kind of 
strange state that's like, oh, that's a good night at the theater. And that whole thing in its kind of oddity was like interesting food for thought and allegory. And it's a fable um, when things are put uh, like on picture, like in, in, into film form, the expectations change for me and probably for some other people that where it, it becomes like this isn't fair to expect of every movie because not every movie is going for this. But I almost then want more than just allegory and fable. I want like a surface movie experience that isn't in and of itself deeply satisfying with layers of allegory, with layers of fable that I can, that I can also dissect. But I think a movie like this, I leave the theater thinking, OK, the thing that is here is allegory fable. That is all there is kind of. And that is what is here for me to like munch on. And I did like I saw it with my cousin and we talked about it afterwards. And she was she had some really interesting thoughts about to her. It felt like a breakup story, like an like an allegory for like actually romantic breakup and and the feeling of one person just deciding one day they are done and the other person just unable to handle that and the devastation of both their lives that can follow in a really bad breakup. <laughs> and and that's that is possible to put onto this movie. You know, nothing about Irish civil war, nothing about Irish history that's possible to put on this movie because of how fable allegory it is. So all that is to say, I think it actually functions nicely as it is. I just personally like these kinds of stories in different spaces, you know, than like the movie theater. And when I go to the movie theater, I kind of want more of like an emotional catharsis and satisfaction at the end. And his movies kind of deny me that. Um, so, yeah, that's my relationship with this movie and him in general as a screenwriter. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting that you say that because one of the first things that I said to the person that I watched this with was like, I could see this being like a play that is just like well-established, like it's been performed a dozen times. Like you just go down to your local theater, <laughs> you know, your, and your community theater is doing the Banshees of Inisherin, And like, I could see it becoming, and, and some of the dialogue sequences and scenes too, becoming kind of that iconic where, yes. you know, different directors can dig into them. And different actors totally. can kind of dig into them and play them slightly, play these characters slightly differently and, um, you know, stage it differently kind of thing. And it's got that kind of like, yeah, our towny kind of, um, yeah, I don't know, just sort of like theatrical richness where it's the play is about the text itself. Right. right. And the interpretation of the text itself. And so I don't think that this is like the be all end all interpretation of this piece of writing. And I'm sure that, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me, I guess, if Martin McDonough doesn't see it that way either. Right. If he writes plays and that is his background, he is a playwright. You can see like, I'm not saying this is what's going to happen, but as you sit down to write something like this, you don't have necessarily like, well, the camera's going to go exactly in this place. And there's like this big cinematic reveal here, or there's this editing trick that I'm going to do or whatever. Like it's not necessarily doesn't feel like it's being thought of in cinematic language. It feels like it's being thought of in kind of like playwright language and where the text itself is the like sacred piece of writing here. Not to diminish the performances at all. All, mm -hmm. or the direction, <laughs> cinematography, like all of that stuff. Right. I just get that sense when I watch it of like, there's so much here that I could see this being done a million different ways and gleaning mm -hmm. different things from it every time it's being revisited. Totally. Totally. Yeah. You know, it, it's interesting to realize that this is a, a part of a play trilogy, as you were saying, Trisha, because that, I guess that probably means this is the first movie he didn't write completely as a movie. And I don't know if that's true or not, but you know, th there is something interesting that happens when a play gets adapted to film like proof or something like that, where it's like, you can do movie stuff, you know, you can be like, here's a score, here's scenery, you know, this movie feels, looks and feels like a movie, like a beautiful movie. But, but then it's sort of like, there is this kind of a stakes thing or a scope thing or something where it's like the finale is like 
some characters say some words to each other and like, here we go. You know, now that's not what this movie is, obviously. Like things happen in this movie, but there is still kind of that very play sense where if like, I feel like if I'm watching it in a theater, I'm going, I'm going, oh yeah, like the the lines that they said to each other really meaningful, right? But then in a movie, you're like, it, there's something different. I, I can't put my finger on it. And we just talked about The Breakfast Club, right? Which is literally just like five people in a room talking and, and plenty of movies do that fine. And that's another movie that uses cinema to be like, we can do editing, we can do music, we can do like cool things. But for whatever reason, like to me, that feels more like a movie where this does feel like a, a play set to film. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It just sort of expectations wise, it just kind of changes what's going on in your brain. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. It is really interesting to think about because, yeah, ever since you've said that, Trisha, I was like, yeah, no, that is like for some reason, <laughs> it feels like this movie, you know, that the center of gravity is the text. And even yes. though these performances are amazing, like Barry Keegan's performance the whole time, I was like watching, I was like, how are you doing yeah. this? Like, this is so amazing. And yeah, it just feels like such a full person and three-dimensional honest and raw the energy all these like and, his oh, like yeah. physical energy yeah it's just crazy <laughs> but it does feel like that kind of thing where like you're saying that the center of the gravity is the text and i'm watching these actors kind of going like oh what are they going to do with these lines and like even one of the lines i wrote when you know park's sister is leaving he has he has a line that says leaving like leaving like not staying mm-hmm. and like that could be a terrible line in mm-hmm. a different context in a different movie. In this movie, it's hilarious because of just you know, the language and the, you know, all of the writing that has happened to like create this world and create this character. And also in the performance, watching Colin Farrell take a line like leaving, like leaving, like not staying and make it like this thing was like a, a microcosm of that experience. And and ever since you've said that, I'm like, well, now I want to see other people do this. And like, I'm right. curious to see different takes on. I want to see the story. Broadway version of this or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Off Broadway. Yeah. yeah. But at the same time, I feel like it, it wasn't. I think it's it's in this in-between place where, like we're saying, there can be plays translated to film that feel like they're missing out on film language or it's like eh, it's, it's people talking in a room and we're just going to shoot it like people talking but it's mostly just the play that you're watching but with some editing this doesn't feel like it's full film language in the driver's seat but also doesn't feel like the film language was an afterthought like it is existing in kind of this weird space where the composer of scenes and sequences and just the cinematography location, I mean, like the setting, I think gorgeous. Is yeah. Like huge. all of that is yeah. feels critical to the experience and not kind of ancillary or kind of tacked on, on top right. of it, which is, yeah. so it's a really unique mix of all these things, which is cool. <laughs> I was reading that they filmed, um, they actually filmed this on two different islands mm. where like Colin Farrell's character, his house is like on a different island than actually Brendan Gleeson's character's house is. Um, and so like there's this, and of course, so much of it takes place outdoors. You know, it's in natural light. There's these huge wide open vistas around, um, it allows you to, you know, shoot the sea and then across the sea where the war is going on and, and all of this stuff. And that would be lost in the theater, right? Like if you were going to watch it as like go down to, you know, and see it as a play. And so I fully agree that like I think there would be a really compelling version of this or several hundred really compelling versions of this, you know, were you to see it on a stage. But I love what the like scope of seeing it, you know, in it, an actual natural environment brings to it. Like, you know, you'd, if you were to go to do this as a play, there's like a little bit of a safety net. I think as when you were talking, Brian, that's what I was thinking, where it's like the climax is going to be characters saying words to each other because there's a safety net in a play where there's, there's not going to be like 
500 extras on stage and like the civil mm-hmm. war is going to come over here to this island and like there's going to be a battle on Anna Sharon. Like I know that's not going to happen in a plan. I know that's not going to happen in this movie either. But at the same time, I don't feel safe when Colin Farrell is like, I'm going to come burn your house down and hope you're inside it. Like that's not doesn't make me feel safe. You know, the scenes where it's interesting that the the scenes with the violence in them, you know, where Brendan Gleeson's character Calm has decided to cut off his fingers. None of that's like explicit on screen. Um, but I also wouldn't say it like feels as safe as a play. It doesn't. Mm. There's a lot of of you know, sadness and death and and things that are harder to capture and get intimately experienced um when you're watching them as a play. So I, I really respect that this is like it feels like I would say it feels like a pandemic movie, which it was, right? Mm. It's like mm. They were shooting this like kind of deep pandemic and safety. They're like, we're all outside and six feet apart and here it is. <laughs> but you wouldn't necessarily know that. It feels like it. it's a perfect marriage of material and, yeah, the actual approach to it as a film. Going back to the setting and just the atmosphere of it, I mean, that was what I really appreciated seeing it in the theater and seeing it on film, not as, as a play just getting to soak in this environment and this time and this place, just like the richness of this, like these stone roads and the, like the the interiors of the homes. Like it, there's a, there's something just so pleasurable as an adult now who cares about like things like that in history, getting to like watch a movie that, that does the details right and cares to really paint a full picture of a time and place and let you just really simmer in that, time and place and mood and that is what this movie does that a play could not do which i which i appreciate i've i've been to this island actually um the the aaron islands yeah and it's it's gorgeous i've been all over ireland i'm a huge irophile whatever it's called (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean getting you know getting into the story itself i think it's interesting um you know, uh, one of our patrons, uh, Albert, uh, he said McDonough often opens his movies, this and three billboards, with just like, here's the main conflict. Here we go. Like, yeah. here's what would normally be the inciting incident. I think in three billboards, it works well because the we understand immediately what the problem is. And it's like, oh, we care about this problem. This is a problem that we, you know, <laughs> it's hard not to care about. This movie is interesting because we don't get we don't see them as friends, you know, and, um, and we don't sort of see any, you know, justification for, we don't see the moment where calm goes, you know what, I'm changing my mind about this relationship. We just don't even see the relationship at all. And I think that's doing thematic stuff because it's talking about, you know, if we're talking about the Irish civil war, we're sort of saying like, here's like an arbitrary rule that someone came up with and then someone else didn't agree with it. And then the, you know, and then of course we have this like shift in these characters through the course of the movie where Parik by the end is the one who's unable to call any sort of truce. And he's like, no, I'm sorry. Like you, I didn't, I didn't want this conflict, but now you've brought it to me and now I'm seeing it through and and it's never going to go away. So of course there's so much thematic stuff going there, but I feel like one of the things that was tricky for me was just not seeing them be as friends at all, you know? So then one day it's just like, welcome to this. There is no, um, uh, you know, what's the, what's the word in screenwriting? Like the, the normal world, right? Like there is no just here's normal world. And then here's what changes. It's just things have changed already. And I don't know. I think that made it tricky for me to kind of get into the plot. I don't know about you guys. Well, to me that, that once again, feels more like a play thing to do, you mm-hmm. know, where you kind of drop in on this like hook of the of the play, which is one day a friend decided to not be a friend anymore. And and it feels kind of big and uh, big, but simple and almost yeah allegorical right off the gate, right out of the gate, rather than kind of like a realistic story about what happens to friendships. Um, and so it, it just sets the stage for really interesting tone because yeah, it's not bothering to get us invested in their friendship. It's starting with the kind of big allegorical, strange event that doesn't really make sense in a normal world. It really worked for me. Like I, as, as a, that was one of the things I noted was like, wow, inciting incident out the gate and like what a yeah. kind of a 
wacky like hook for a thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it created a lot of questions. It made me lean in and want to know like, were they rowing? Like now he doesn't know if they're rowing. I want to know if they're rowing. Who's rowing? It sounds like they're uh, rowing. <laughs> um, so it worked for me as, as far as pulling me in. I do feel like it, there was some loss of momentum then about 20 minutes into the film then where I was like, so is this the movie? Like, is right. it just, is, is this the movie? And I wasn't sure. And then it took another 15 minutes for it to confirm. Okay. Yes, this is the movie. This is what we will be watching so hooked me but kind of fell off a little bit what i think i think what did hook me as well is just colin farrell's performance right out the gate just because we get to just watch him once again with this really great text just looking at his face dealing with this strange change of events and it's just it's it's a great character to just watch deal with things and that is one of the pleasures of this movie is just watching Poor Colin Farrell, you know, dull pod Parik just deal with <laughs> deal with these emotions he's feeling. Yeah, I agree. I think it actually really works for me. I did notice it, too, where I was like, you can't just drop me in here. What what are the stakes? What do I care about? What, what's the portrait of these two men that I'm like trying to hang on to and like feel the loss of? But at the same time, I think the there's a POV thing that it does accomplish where we are in Parek's headspace and we're like, what the hell happened? <laughs> like, mm. why is it, why right. is it like this? And like, you know, calm is so acts so like infinitely reasonable about it where he's just like, no, I just don't like you no more. Like basically. And then like, just love, you know, we're just sort of left to wrestle with, well, there must be more, right? There can't, that can't be all like, and, and every sort of, you know, tertiary character is dealing with it too, but it, it kind of does plant you firmly in Parek's POV. And it's interesting how the movie then kind of messes with that as it goes along a little bit here and there. Um, and as it builds out the character web, because that also, you know, Power ends up being the character through which we meet all the other characters and the supportive cast and stuff on Anna Sharon. And um, yeah, I think that we mentioned at the top how simple of a plot this is, but thinking back on it, and it is, but thinking back on it, it's not like there aren't subplots. There definitely are subplots mm -hmm. that are really deftly woven together um, where you like have the crazy old witch woman that is lurking about uh, <laughs> just casting a pall of gloom over everything. And then, um, you know, how you have Barry Keegan's character, Dominic, um, and both his relationship with Parik and his relationship with his father, um, his father's sort of relationship with the community and like their whole thing is really interesting. Obviously, Dominic's like secret love of Shaban. It's uh, not that secret. Um, and all kinds of other like little things that are woven, you know, in and out here. And so I think having a central character like Power basically as the central character and then kind of exploring the community through that, you know, we don't need to know who these people were before Calm made his choice that he made. We get enough of it. And then there's enough to do, like, from that point moving forward where we're starting to get to see the ripples themselves are introducing us into, like, the community. And it, it's easy enough to imagine what it was like, you know, where nothing ever changed and they just started drinking at 2 p.m. every day down at the, <laughs> down at the pub. Um, it's easy to imagine that because there's, there's enough, like, sameness and also the ripples as they stretch out like people you see how different people are reacting like the bartender and the sister and all these things um that it kind of helps you fill in the blanks of what was and then just makes you interested in what it is going forward mm -hmm. yeah it is interesting how i found myself on team colin farrell toward the beginning of like that's not very nice brendan gleason likes it's not nice to just be not someone's friend one day and then as you're following the actions that he's taking and like once Brendan Gleeson starts cutting off his fingers to make a point which like I know this isn't the right takeaway but in my head I was like that's kind of like a badass commitment to stubbornness of like no I'm literally <laughs> gonna do this like um, yeah I have issues but as a fiddle it, player <laughs> <laughs> just like it was really interesting I mean that's just it's a hilarious way to up the stakes 
but shift seeing the full perspective of everyone in the relationship over time, kind of to your point, Trisha, by the end, I do feel like I have a sense of what that friendship was like just yeah. because of the journey and all the angles we see it from throughout the, the course of the plot. Yeah. Yeah. I, d I definitely agree that like by the end of the movie, you've sort of, the movie has sort of done the, the, the retconning <laughs> to, <laughs> to kind of give you the first, the sort of imaginary first act. Um, but then, yeah, talking about the character web also, you know, I love this sort of what Dominic does, which is he sort of puts, uh, Parik in the middle of, of these three characters rather than all the way at the sort of the, the goofball village idiot ends, you know? Right. And mm -hmm. so it's, so it's like, okay, we're not, he's not the goofball. This guy, this guy's the gum. Um, but then also as Parik starts changing, then, you know, then Dominic's like, wait a minute, that's the worst thing I've ever heard. I thought you yeah. used to be nice. And it's like, oh, he's, he is like sort of this sweet boy where now Parik is not, he, he's not the dumbest of them, but he's also not the nicest of them, you know, and, and he, it, we watch that transition throughout the course of the movie. And then of course you have Shaban who is just like the only smart person around. Who's just like, poor <laughs> yeah. woman. Yeah. But, but you know, boring. Who, <laughs> <laughs> no, she, she was great. She was always like a breath of like fresh air and catharsis in those scenes. <laughs> I know. Right. I was always Thank like, you. don't worry, Shaban's going to fix it. Like she, like she comes storming into the pub and I'm like, get him Shaban. <laughs> right. <laughs> But then, of course, like her, um, uh, another one of our, our patrons, Christopher, mentioned just like, you know, her, he calls it her escape from the island, right? Which is just like the the way to avoid this conflict is to just leave. Like you, that's a thing you can do. You know, it may not be available for everybody, but um, but even down to, to Parik at the end saying like, no, I'm not going to. I'm not going to make that choice because I'm sort of stuck here in this conflict for the rest of eternity. Um, but I love that she not only never sees any sense in the conflict, but also is just smart enough to, to, to just get out. Yeah. It reminds me of when we were talking about reservoir dogs, which was a uh, patron exclusive that we did. Um, we were kind of talking about how Tarantino's movies are almost always about men or like some of his, you know, especially that one reservoir dogs. Um, mm. And, like, they don't necessarily read as, like, a comment on masculinity more broadly, but they are about, like, male relationships um, within themselves. And this movie feels that way, too. And it's nice to have Shaban as, like, a counterpoint to that. But this is a movie about a male friendship and, like, what men in this particular time and culture, especially, but but perhaps men more broadly are willing to like endure or say to each other or, you know, be to each other in a lot of ways. It's really interesting. And so I think having Shaban be the character that's like, I can leave, like maybe none of you men on this Island can leave. And you kind of get that hopelessness. You know, I think the movie kind of ends on this, like we're never moving on from this note. Um, and of course, it, it's period film about the Irish Civil War. And, you know, that's kind of the character Parik's conclusion, right? Where he's like, I think they'll go on fighting forever and good. Like, mm -hmm. I hope, you know, they never move on or some things you can't move on from. There's a character with an outside perspective and it's kind of the only woman in the movie that's like, hey, I can leave. I can move on from this, um, even if you guys can't. And I think that's a really interesting, like, little aspect of the theme. Yeah, absolutely. And and she is a stand-in for the 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 Irish people who did leave uh, right. during the war. And they said, like, you know, we we don't need to, we don't have a dog in this fight or a donkey. Um, but like we, you know, <laughs> that's what that, a dog that's or why, a donkey. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and that's why, you know, the, the East coast of the United States has like a, a whole lot of, uh, a whole lot of, you know, big Irish population and stuff. Cause people just said, let's, let's not be part of this. Let's get out of there. Yeah. Yeah. Good animal performances also. Yeah. Like, oh, yes. Yeah. 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 Speaking of like themes in this movie, I also was struck by the, the theme of like legacy versus niceness. Uh, and oh, I think yeah. that, that was yeah. just like a really fun, just existential theme to to have a characters debate about which is what is what is worth doing with your life and there's these two answers these two men 
have for what is worth doing with your life. Um, and, and they're fundamentally incompatible because, you know, one of them requires <laughs> shutting the other one out so he can focus on his legacy. Um, but, but I, but I, I did, I did like if the movie was going to be kind of acting in this mode of allegory, I appreciate when those movies also just let the characters just discuss in that almost like play sort of way, just directly discuss theme. And I really appreciated that theme in particular um, because it, and it was great to hear, you know, Colin Farrell try to defend niceness as the ultimate, you know, great thing. Of course, obviously being a nice person is the, is the most important thing ever. And calm having just like the clear sighted answer of like, yeah, but you will be forgotten in 50 years. Mozart is not forgotten 200 years later or whatever. Well, and, and on that particular theme, because I do think it's a really interesting one, a couple things. The first is that there's this really fascinating uh, push and pull with Calm's character where I believe him when he says he doesn't want to be friends with Parik because he wants to focus on leaving a legacy. He wants to write this piece of music. He wants to, like spend his time in a more thoughtful way. Like, you know, he's older than Parik is. Like, he can kind of see the end of his life maybe coming. And, like, I believe him when he says that there's this sort of, like, existential weight on his shoulders. Um, and at the same time, his way of, like, trying to free himself of this encumberment that he sees to his legacy is also to hinder his own legacy, right? Mm -hmm. By cutting off his fingers. And right. so there's... Again, I feel like I'm missing the Irishness of that metaphor, maybe, um, or like the many dimensional aspects of it. But I do think that that's like, you know, by being re by refusing to compromise to continue to make space for a person in his life, he actually is taking himself further away from the goal that he is right. says that he is wanting to reach. And so it kind of sheds light on what ultimately like is potentially a false dichotomy, right? Like you can't have friendship with simple people. You can't be nice <laughs> and you also can't like leave a legacy. You've got to pick one or the other. Um, and I think that that's really like, I don't know. It's just wild. The scene where he's sitting at the pub, like holding his fiddle with his bleeding hand and like can't play it anymore. And you're like, you can't play What's it happening? anymore. Like, but I can conduct. Yes, I can conduct. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wait, like unbandaged, like openly bleeding. There's so like, much you have. Like, stump. Like, can you yeah. just bandage like, it up? It's going to get infected. You let <laughs> his dog lick the lick it. Ugh, gosh. Ugh. <laughs> Yeah, because you, you mentioned how it ends up being futile, you know, the, his of pursuit course. of like the perfect, you know, focus ends up getting him the inability to write music uh, or play music, at least. Uh, and, and it's the same for Powerick's character. You know, he becomes very not nice and very bitter. Um, so I think it, it does show a nice way in which those, the, that theme layers on top of the futility of war theme quite nicely in the as the allegory plays out. Right. And that was the other thing that I was going to say, which is just that like wars are often fought about principle and right. people who put principle over relationship. Right. And so that's kind of like the the tension at the heart of this story, which is like Brendan Gleeson calm has decided that he has a principle and he is willing to sacrifice a primary relationship in his life to to adhere to his principle. Um, and then, you know, um, Parik is the opposite. He will, he has no principles. All he has are the relationships in his life. And those are the ones that he cares about. And like he, to the point where, yeah, he starts becoming a worse person and lying to people saying that their parents are dead or whatever. Like that scene is awful. And he's awful to Dominic too, which I think is interesting, right? This sort of like cycle that mm -hmm. we find that, you know, the, the cycle of hurt, where once Parik is hurt by Calm, then Parik goes on to hurt Dominic. And anyway, but yeah, it's it's this like principle versus relationship. And we see that. That's what wars are fought about. You know, some people are just like, all I care about in this whole world is people that I care about and we should put people first. And a lot of other people have principles and they're willing to sacrifice relationships for them all the time. And 
harm themselves in doing and so. harm themselves yeah. in the process right, right. like i want to I want to see this you know talking about uh, we want to see this on broadway or other people do this i want to see this where um it's john goodman as calm and jeff bridges as parik <laughs> and steve buscemi <laughs> as, as dominic and julianne moore as siobhan uh, <laughs> the hell yeah. out of that yeah uh, yes. yeah Sign me up. It's just be an annual every year. They they remake this with different it's like fan actors. Yeah. Yeah. But it, but it's interesting that we've talked about right. We've talked about it with Shaun of the Dead, and we've talked about Big Lebowski, and now we're talking about it with uh, with Banshees of Sharon Is this sort of idea of like let's have people on either side of the protagonist's belief, you right. know, and, and then that way they can we can sort of see where they stand. How do they stand in the middle of the world, uh, and then which side are they going to at one end or the other? So so you know to see. Uh, as you were just saying, Trisha, to see Paul Rick kind of continue this vicious cycle um, by by how he treats Dominic is a really interesting you know thing that the character web does. I want to know what you guys think happened to Dominic because mm. I, I think the movie leaves it a little open for interpretation. What do we think? Isn't there like a little like a line earlier about somebody? Like walking into the walking lake into the lake, yeah. like something that sort of suggests like someone taking their own life by going into the lake. For some mm. reason that was in my head uh, as something. Well, that either, yeah, said. there's that scene in the post office. I don't remember the exact line, but but about but maybe yeah, maybe that is what it says. Yeah, I feel like there's something in the post office. There's some right. gossip about drowning. I thought yeah, yeah. that made well, me lean toward drown. That's not right, that's yeah, not yeah, the yeah. question <laughs> I'm yeah, asking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but I, I, I assumed suicide um, first, just because of the way that his relationship is left with Parik and then also with Shaban and you know, his father. It's like, who does he have left on this island? You know, right. Well, with, and with, the expression yeah. on his father's face, I think, is readable in a couple different ways. But, you know, there's there's also like, I don't know, I think that's the kind of thing where, I, again, I could see a director taking this and making it their own and being like, right. Oh, this was an escalation and the father has finally killed him. Um, mm -hmm. Or like this was truly like some kind of cosmic accident uh, type of deal where, you know, it's interesting the moment where um, Shaban leaves and she looks back at the cliff and she can see Parik standing there and she waves at him. And then we get a view from the side of the, cliff where we we see Parik in the foreground and then there's another figure behind him mm -hmm. on the cliff edge in the background that's out of focus which i assume is this witch woman mm -hmm. who just mm -hmm. kind of lurks about but we don't actually see that person in focus ever so right. like i wondered too i was like who is that is that another implication that like yeah it could have been dominic maybe uh like watching shaban leaving or who knows yeah by the way, I loved the witch woman, Mrs. McCormick. Like just oh, that yeah. act, that actor, her face was just so perfect. Her kind of glee at <laughs> the mishap, the 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 like misfortune of others. It's and just, she's one of the last people we yeah. see in the movie too. Yeah, yeah. Also, um, PSA: If you Google Mrs. McCormick, you get pictures of Kenny's mom from South Park. You have to uh, be, more, <laughs> be more specific. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, so I think we're in agreement that people should start, um, you know, remaking this, doing their own takes. Somebody call Baz Luhrmann, get him on this. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Why don't we go around and say what lessons we're going to take from Banshees of Inishirin. Alex, do you want to start? Sure. Um, well, one thing you definitely cannot do on stage easily is have animals in your show. And I think one thing that really this movie benefits from is the use of animals. And I think there's something just kind of beautiful about the way that animals are shot and used in this movie as these other presences in scenes and kind of out there outside of the human conflict in kind of a lovely way. And then of course, you know, Jenny plays a pivotal role in mm -hmm. the kind of crisis for Powerick's character. And I think it's just, it is kind of cheat codes, you know, in a movie to have a sweet animal that is loyal and loving and to kill that animal is way worse than ever killing a person in a movie, in my opinion. Sure. Um, and, and I think, yeah, just the, the smart use of animals in a story like this uh, goes a long way to like 
creating the emotional stakes that are quite believable. <laughs> you know, killing a donkey sounds kind of like silly on paper, but there's enough moments throughout this movie of just kind of like a sweetness shared between the donkey and Parik that like by the time that event happens, like we are with him in his there's no going back because <laughs> you killed Jenny. <laughs> yeah. And it's a great way to, you know, represent like the innocence in this war that is happening and this food right. and like the, the, the innocent bystanders yeah. right along the way. Yeah. Uh yeah. That's that's really pure cute. innocence. Yeah. Cool. Brian, what's your lesson? Um, yeah, you know, we talked about just the the construction of the individual scenes and the dialogue in this movie. And I think that this, this is a movie where like the sum of the parts is maybe not like doesn't all work for me, but it's just like every scene, you know, as you were saying, Trisha, I'm just like, yes, I'm, I'm having I'm having a good time right now. Um, and I just remember the the experience of watching the first five minutes of this movie, you know, and the whole running, uh, you know, you're around. It doesn't sound like you've been around. It sounds like you've been around. It does sound like you've been around. And I'm just like, yes, like I am. I am in the hands of, you know, it's sort of like a Sorkinese type, like like back and forth. Um, and, you know, and I was just thinking about the importance of like just working on a scene in a vacuum. Um, and, you know, when we talked about the the Star Wars prequels, it's sort of the opposite of this, right? Where it's just sort of, you know, we talked about like George Lucas being like, the dialogue is just here to service the plot. It's not here to be a good scene or anything interesting or whatever, right? And, but then sometimes when you are writing a script, like you're, you do have scenes that feel like they're just stepping stones. You're like, we need some characters to say this to each other and then we'll move on to like the good scene, the scene I really care about. Um, but then, you know, you come back for another pass and you spend time on it and you're like, now, now that scene, I'm I'm going to make it entertaining and compelling. And then you spend more time on it. You're like, now that like the dialogue is going to have kind of weight and rhythm to it. And I'm going to really like make it, you know, it doesn't all have to be snappy snorkin dialogue, obviously, but just like kind of crafting it to the point where you feel like it's, it's the best you can do. Um, and, you know, when I write a script, I've, I've outlined, uh, you know, a lot. So sometimes I sit down and I write several scenes in one sitting, you know, and, and I'm not thinking, super, super hard about an individual scene. I'm saying that that sounds good. I'm going to keep going. But then what's interesting is when I realize like, oh, you know what? I need to add a scene here. And then my job for that, that writing session is just to think about one scene. And then I'm like, oh, I'm like constructing the scene and I'm giving it kind of a structure and what's the midpoint of this scene and everything. And like, that is really rewarding. And then it's rewarding to go into scenes that you've already written and say, you know, why does this scene drag? Like, Oh, because I had, because I didn't give it that kind of care and thought to it. So yeah, I just think this, this movie is a good example uh, of a movie where each scene feels like it was really well crafted and really well thought of. And just a good lesson to just sort of force yourself to sit down with your scenes in a vacuum and think about them. Think about how, how can you make the scene as best as possible outside of the, the rest of, of, of your script? Right. Yeah. Cause it needs to be entertaining on its own and part of the whole all right. at once. And that, that kind of ties into my lesson, actually. So one of our uh, patrons, uh, Karidi Vanda V, I think I'm probably saying your name wrong. I apologize, but brought up that they they did a Hollywood Reporter roundtable with, uh, you know, all the nominated screenwriters. And there's a, a section where they're talking about like outlining. And apparently Martin McDonough doesn't outline or at least didn't with this and just sort of like goes where the story takes him, like understands the characters, understands the conflict, and then just kind of goes. And I think that's really interesting. And and Creedy was sort of asking about like, yeah, this the uh, architects versus gardeners when it comes to mm. the writing process. And I, this was really interesting to think about for me because we we didn't talk about structure a ton in this episode, other than sort of the inciting incident being peculiar and like the pros and cons of that. But I do think the rest of the movie does follow a conventional powerful structure where there is like a lot happening in the midpoint. I believe that pub scene when uh, Parik gets drunk and sort of like lays it all out is happening in the midpoint. That's around when uh, his sister gets the letter. That's like, you have a job waiting for you. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of pivotal things are happening there. There's a very clear, all hope is lost crisis like moment for Parik when all the fingers have been cut off and Jenny's dead and its sister is gone. Like those, the broad strokes of a conventional 
structure are all there. And so I think it points to, and this is kind of, I think was part of what you were saying too, Brian, it's like there's, I think there are lots of different ways to get at a compelling narrative uh, flow. And I think it's the, the important part is that you get there, but I think how you get there can be unique to each individual. Um, and so I think the, you know, I say this all the time and this is, you know, structure, blah, 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 blah. But I think it's important to remember that, you know, the, the gardening method works as long as you end up with a good story. Like just doing it one way doesn't mean you've, you've made a good story and just doing a structure doesn't mean you've created a compelling story that anyone cares about or is emotionally invested in. So it's, it's ultimately about like where you get with these things, not necessarily where you come from. Maybe you need to put a trellis in your garden for the plants to hey, climb on. See, this is great. Yeah, <laughs> a little go. bit of structure. This is, this is beautiful. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it's too much metaphor this episode. <laughs> no, I, I just want to add to that. You know, my answer anytime someone says like, oh, do you start with music or lyrics or structure or, you know, dialogue or character or themes? It's like start wherever you want. Just know that you're yeah. going to have to do it all eventually. You know, and I think that people people think if Martin McDonough says, I don't outline, I just start writing, people think that means your movie doesn't need structure. It's like, no, it does. And he got there. You know, he, he got a, a, a movie with a, a solid structure. Um, he just didn't do it the way other people do it, you know, but I think that people can take from that oh, that doesn't matter. It's like, no, no, it all matters. <laughs> like, like in order to make something great, you're probably going to need all of the pieces. You can just start anywhere you want and then you can sort of do the cleanup work later. It's just going to be, it, something is going to be homework no matter what, <laughs> uh, unless yeah. you're perfect and can do it all at once, you know, just yeah. sit down for an hour and 40 minutes and write an hour and 40 page <laughs> script and everything's fine. Yeah, Just That's like it. when George Lucas wrote... I'm a senator. You're a Jedi. I will not give into this. <laughs> but you know, like maybe Lauren McDonough with this cast, like, could make that line be good. Like, right. make, that's true. Like, with a great Irish accent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't like sand. It's coarse. <laughs> it gets everywhere. <laughs> I already like it like a hundred times more. <laughs> don't make me kill you. Wow. <laughs> Wow. Okay, now I want the prequels remade yeah. with Irish people by Martin McDonough. From my point of view, it's the Jedi that are evil. <laughs> it's all better. We didn't even get into the tone, but I think I think you're hitting on something here um, with the tone. Uh, but yeah, anyway, my lesson uh, has to do with a scene that actually would be very hard to interpret on stage. Um, which is the one where Parrot confronts Dominic's father at the busy bodies mail post office, whatever. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. And then he gets uh, the crap kicked out of him. And then Calm comes and helps him up. And it's in the first uh, first half of the second act. It might even be actually at the break into two. It's pretty early on. Um and I think it's such a beautiful scene because it ends up, you know, being dialogueless, and it it's a nice, like it's tense, but it also like says everything. The characters' actions say everything, and so you know, for as much as we've talked about how this would be as a play, and I do think there's a way you could stage it, where you know you have a little combat sequence on stage where it's really just a punch or two. Uh, I think maybe a punch and a couple of kicks that Parek ends up taking. And then Calm comes along and, you know, you have the little thing where does he also beat up the policeman? He punches the policeman or something. Later, no, he, later. Just picks up, yeah. he just picks up Parek, I think, and yeah. helps him into his wagon. And then they, you know, they drive off together. There would be a way to stage it, I think. You'd probably just have them kind of like sitting on a stationary bench with like the sound of horses hooves clopping. Listen, I'm already <laughs> directing a version of this in my head. <laughs> Let's do it, Trisha. Let's do it. But you would lose something here, right? There's this beautiful tension to that scene where you you wonder if Parik is going to say anything, but when he starts to cry, you realize he's not. And he just is 
feeling the loss of this companionship, of this friendship. And I think it's just such a lovely moment that we missed talking about earlier where the backstory fills in itself. Like this is a, an instance where we can see the friendship for what it was and the care that goes into that like exists between these two men. Um, and then we can see what is lost in the fact that they then can't even exchange a word about it. Um, and then, you know, of course, Calm just gets off the wagon and goes down his split of the road and lets Parrot go on his split of the road. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's just a good lesson in a non-dialogue scene. Mm. Like, no matter how talky your play is, um, finding action in a visual way to communicate volumes, um, that's a really good scene to study. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like when it's too quiet in plays, I get uncomfortable. Mm. Like, I feel like silence works well in film, but like silence in a the, the theater, it's like. Well, it's, just, it's a packed house. There's a lot of right, ambient sound. Yeah. And then you, I don't know. I get live performances stress me out. Um, it's a good lesson. <laughs> I also just realized like we don't need to look very far to figure out who the cast will be of our version of this play starring three men and one woman like we're, <laughs> we're, we're good next episode but Stacey who, but who is who our reading of the banshees of Anna Sharon I mean I want to be calm and Dominic so I don't know <laughs> listeners patrons send us your castings Cast us. Yeah. yeah send us your castings on Twitter and, and discord I, why the, and cast a gender blind why not I was gonna say yeah mm -hmm. like yeah, yeah. I think Trisha would be a good Dominic. Thank you. <laughs> there goes that dream. <laughs> I want to be the sister. Um, okay, cool. Well, uh, why don't we go around and say what else we've been watching. But first, we can announce our next episode, which is going to Ooh. be us talking about our favorite films of the 1980s. That decade. Ye old 1980s. Michael yes. promises to have seen at least 10 by then. Yeah. I'm almost. <laughs> Get started. I'm almost there. <laughs> yeah. I've almost found 10 films. Wow. <laughs> these, are, these are Michael's 10 films of the 80s that he has seen. <laughs> right. That is my list. And then everyone <laughs> yeah. else, it'll be their favorites of the yeah. Not the de facto favorites. Cool. Alex, what have you been watching recently? So I watched Megan, the, uh, the latest uh, Blumhouse. The uh, murder kind of doll movie. Murder doll movie. Yeah. Mithrigan. Mithrigan. Yeah, we have the kind of weirdly like, yeah, three shaped E in her name for some reason. Because um, she's electronic, I guess. I don't know. Uh, anyway, uh, but uh, it was what you want from a, just a mid mid budget uh, Blumhouse, just fun popcorn flick. Uh, and, it, and it did the great horror movie thing of just being very on theme the whole time very much about the theme of all the anxieties about parenting right now and kids and devices and kids and electronics and screen time um very much tapping into all of those anxieties in just a pretty just you know off the walls fun chucky kind of movie <laughs> with a really disconcerting you know small like child-sized uh, doll <laughs> so uh, robot doll so yeah it's it's a it's a really good time uh I, I if you're looking for that experience that just kind of good solid blumhouse movie it it is that and it was it's a good time okay is that allison williams I'm yeah allison williams. oh that's creepy already that's great okay um <laughs> trisha what have you been watching recently uh yeah so I caught a new film that is on your Netflix. Uh, it is a new adaptation of the D.H. Lawrence novel, Lady Shatterley's Lover. I would put it carefully or solidly in this genre that I call a bodice ripper. Um, <laughs> which is the trailer just, looked really sexy. Ooh, it is very explicit. Uh, I love a good modern bodice ripper because you used to not actually be able to show anything in a bodice ripper. It all had to be implied. But now it's like this is. This is all very explicit. Um, but I, re I really liked it. It works for me. Um, you know, I read the novel like ages ago 
And, but I just like this kind of movie. It's just like a period romance movie and it's moody and it's kind of about, you know, almost always it's about like women, like trying to find meaning and liberation in their own way from like really traditional systems that they're trapped in. And I don't want to spoil anything, I guess, but where it goes is kind of not where I was expecting. A lot of these movies end in like, deep, deep tragedy. And uh, this one actually doesn't in a way that I really appreciated. And yeah, it's a it's a good adaptation of this book. And um, if you like a good sexy romance novel from, you know, with lots of beautiful costumes and people with somewhat suppressed longing that then becomes very, very explicit <laughs> sex scenes, then Lady Shadowly's <laughs> Lover is for you. So, uh, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Highly recommend it. And it stars, what's her name from Crown Season 4? Yes. Princess uh, Emma, Emma Corrin and Jack O'Connell uh, are the two leads in it. Uh, but, yeah. Nice. I recently moved, uh, but I did live very close to a bookstore called The Ripped Bodice. Nice. Um, and Ugh. it's exactly what you'd expect. So if you're ever in LA, check it out. Yeah, I was as I was sitting and watching this, I was just like, is this the best genre of thing? Because I, <laughs> yeah. I personally yeah. think it is. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Nice. Okay, cool. Brian, what have you been watching recently? Uh, I watched a uh, another 2022 film called Brian and Charles. Um, which is this bizarre British mockumentary uh, about a guy named Brian in rural Wales who fancies himself as an inventor, but he's really just kind of a mess. He invents a flying bicycle and two seconds later, it's just on fire. Um, but then one day he invents a robot and it works and the robot names himself Charles Petrescu and they become best friends. <laughs> <laughs> That's what this movie is. Okay. Um, I, I guess they've actually, the, these two guys have actually played these characters in uh, short films and like radio before. And he's played this character, Brian, on like uh, Ricky Gervais's Afterlife show and stuff. But this is the first time they kind of brought it to... Um, uh, to to a movie and it's just this weird sweet movie that's sort of a meditation on having a child but also a best friend or a partner just sort of all the ups and downs of like having someone you care about who is you know maybe sometimes growing apart from you and um and uh it just it just charmed me to no end <laughs> just it's like very simple uh it's a very simple story but i was just with it the whole time and maybe it's because my name but the way that the robot says brian uh just like it just warmed my heart every time so uh <laughs> i highly recommend brian and charles you are my friend brian <laughs> cute nice cool i rewatched true detective season one mm. recently uh, and then I was doing that kind of solo. And then my partner was like, what the hell? You watched it without me? I want to watch it. And then I was like, okay, let's watch it again. And so we watched it again. So wow. I watched Whoa. True Detective season one twice very recently. And Bancy's been a Sharon. So you're just in a great mood. All yeah. <laughs> well, and that's, I don't know. Yeah. For some reason, True Detective season one is like my comfort food like i've, uh -huh. I've seen this, like seven yeah like i've seen this six times i'm pretty sure like start to finish it's really really good and this time i was paying attention to just like the structure of it and i really like non-linear storytelling and i feel like season one does this really cool thing where you know you have these narrators narrating in the past but it's also setting up you know what's going to happen you know maybe not in the past i don't want to do spoilers but the way that they uh, create, like, give questions to you, like, or there's just, like constant, there's a ton of questions about like what's going to happen and wait, what happened between like you're both wondering what will happen and what did happen and what is happening all at once, and then they give you the answers like the beat before you expect them, but with mm -hmm. that answer comes another question, so you're just constantly like trying to like grab a hold of all of this, and all the while Matthew McConaughey is being nihilistic in the most <laughs> beautiful way uh, just listening to him talk about time bank a flat circle we should talk about it sometime mm -hmm. yeah, we should i would love let's to let's do it yeah so anyway you don't have to you won't have to rewatch it but you may want to anyway but i will <laughs> yes <laughs> uh anyways true detective good good show nice yeah uh awesome okay well this has been our conversation about banshees of inishirin 
I feel like we, we went to some cool places. I feel like I like this movie more now, having like mm-hmm. thought about it or and talked about it. Um, yeah. To the point well, where we'll like... we'll see what happens at the Oscars. Indeed we will. I feel like this has got to get some performance wins. Yeah. I yeah. would think so. Sure. Yeah. Like, I mean, all least. four of the central characters are nominated. Yeah. And that's usually a, a good sign. Somebody did something right somewhere. Excellent. Thank you to our patrons for making this show possible. If you want to help us make more episodes, head to the Beyond the Screenplay Patreon. The link is in the show notes. Thank you to our producer, Vince Major, our editors, Donovan Bullen, Caleb Berg, Graham Harther, and Eric Schneider. I'm Michael Tucker, and I've been joined today by Trisha Rand, Brian Pittner, and Alex Cayeros. All of our Twitter handles in the show notes. Send us a tweet. Tell us who you would cast in the, the remake of this starring us. Uh, the live will, show. Yes. Or any, any, any you're, you're, you're going to direct it in a major theater in your town or whatever. Like, who do you cast? Sure. Dreamcast. That's what I want to know. Doesn't have to be us. It could be us with other people, too. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> holding our own against, you know, Angela Bassett or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and we will see you in the next episode for our discussion of our favorite films of the 80s. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye, so. Bye. Bye.